I mean, it's a great story. You got Ishmael and Queequeg, who historians say were very good friends. They were roommates. They slept <laughs> on the same cot. Or, no, they All didn't right. have cots. They had, like, hammocks. hammocks. Oh, that's so cute. Oh, yeah, no. The Ishmael Queequeg relationship is fucking hashtag goals. It's beautiful. <laughs> what you need to write is a novel that just focuses on them. Actually, oh, right? yes. It's just like yes. a buddy rom-com while like whale nonsense is happening in the background. Honestly, I feel like that could probably get greenlit. And they're both shit talking. This fucking the asshole time. won't let this. I know, right? It's weird. <laughs> just make hey, sure you get to it before uh, Taika. Yeah. Taika might get to first. Ishquag? Yeah. They're find a better ship name for them. Ishquag and Quimail both sound bad. They make you sound <laughs> um, a little bit drunk. Quimail yeah. sounds like it's a slur of some sort. <laughs> yeah, Quimail definitely sounds like a, a slur. Ishquag sounds Ish- like... Ishquag sounds like a Battlestar Galactica slur. Oftentimes <laughs> on this podcast, I'm just like, Alicia's going to cut this part out. This is going to be like the front part. No. <laughs> All right. You ready to talk about Pan Labyrinth? Let's yes. do it. Yes. All right. Clap. Good evening and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the show where we hold horror to standards it absolutely never agreed to. <laughs> Good evening and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the podcast where we hold horror to progressive standards it never agreed to. Tonight, we're talking about the Guillermo del Toro masterpiece of creepy cinema, Pan's Labyrinth. I am your host, Jeremy Whitley, and with me tonight, I have a panel of cinephiles and cinebites. First, they're here to challenge the sexy werewolf, sexy vampire binary, my co-host, Ben Kahn. Ben, how are you tonight? All right. Y'all, and when I say y'all, I mean y'all, like the other panelists, you the listener, the film press, my own life partner, have spent the last 16 fucking years straight up lying to me about what this movie was. Oh. I have watched this movie for the first time. I have spent the last 16 years being told, yeah, no, it's a fantasy movie. Yeah, it's got like the war, like, you know, the Spanish period wars, like the framing device and the fantasy. Lies. Fucking lies. This is not a fantasy movie with a war framing device. This is a war movie with a fantasy framing device. Potato, potato. Everybody's talking about, ooh, the fantasy, the fantasy, and them creatures. That is like fucking 20 minutes of a two-hour movie that is mostly spent straight up being about fascist Spain. Uh, Where the horror is in this movie might surprise you. Not clickbait. Yeah. (laughs) And and also our co-host, the cinnamon roll of Cenobites, Emily Martin. How are you tonight, Emily? I'm doing good. This movie, I think it rained less in this movie than it did while I was watching this movie. So I'm just pointing that out for an index of when I recorded this. Yeah, after you escaped the uh, frigid mountains of California. Uh, yeah, your, God. Your trip through the snows. Ah, we broke the planet. Apparently. Somebody's uh, by that. I mean, it's first. pretty obvious that this planet is broken. I don't think it's the kangaroo's fault. Kangaroos are fucked up. Just turn it off and turn it on again. We just got to unplug it and then plug it back in. 
From Emily's description of the last week in California, I can only assume that it's been wall-to-wall horror movies happening somewhere in California because it only like rains or snows in California when there's a horror movie going on there. Have you guys seen that movie, The Core? Yeah. Oh, where they go? Yeah. I haven't actually seen it. I just know that the, the, the trailers on TV summed it up perfectly. So I'm like, all right, I don't need to see that. I know what happens. It's, uh, does, it is does, a mess. Does Geostorm count as a horror movie? <laughs> I don't know. I don't Probably think it counts it just, at all. It's not valid. <laughs> and tonight we have two returning guests with us. First up, you've already heard her returning to talk about more Guillermo del Toro after hours of talking about Loki's butt when we talked about Crimson Peak. It's comics writer and artist Carrie Tupper. Welcome back, Carrie. Hey, thanks for having me, you guys. And I do not regret a second of talking about Loki's butt. It was a thing of beauty. It was. It was and it is. Yes. Terrible. Unfortunately, here we only have macho fascists who I am definitely worried are going to fall into the satire paradox. I think that's pronounced mucho fascist. There's a lot of fascists. There's a lot of fascists. Mucho fascists. Hey. And you just heard him. At this point, he must be one of our platinum level guests. Is that a thing? Do we have a frequent guest rewards program? Well, if we do, English educator Emmanuel Lipscomb is definitely part of it. Welcome back, Emmanuel. Thanks. I'm putting that on my resume. This movie rules. It's got my boy Doug Jones in it. And that dude doesn't even speak Spanish. Yep. He's in here twice. And he doesn't have to. Not in this movie. Doug Jones, the human special effect. Again, I'm not going to be fair or objective to this movie. Because I am still living in the critical dissonance of what I spent the last 16 years thinking Pan's Labyrinth was. Are you sure you were thinking of Labyrinth? Pan's Labyrinth actually is. Maybe you were thinking of David Bowie. No, because everyone, because all people talk about is the little girl and the fawn creature and the man with the hand eye and Mitch McConnell with the hand eyes. (laughs) Okay, I'm really glad that you mentioned that he looks like Mitch McConnell because I literally wrote in my note, this Mitch McConnell looking ass. Exactly. Yeah. Verbatim. (laughs) I think I just thought they were the same person, but that's unfair to Doug Jones. It is unfair to Doug Jones. It's actually, maybe it's a compliment to the practical effects guy. That's true. Part of me wonders if they were looking at Mitch McConnell. I thought it was going to be like, okay, this is the background, like, What's going on? The fantasy is going to be allegorical to the terrible things she's going through in the real world. Or it's going to be like our framing device to then fall into like a total fantasy world. Not like, hey, check out the main character's babysitter. She's going to have more screen time. I mean, this movie does fall a little bit into the Guillermo del Toro trap of naming people things that are important and literal. Like, we have another Mercedes, as we did in Kronos. We have a Carmen, you know, which means song. We have a Vidal, which means life. He really loves to put it kind of on the nose. Means things. Ophelia, the girl that dies. Yeah, Ophelia. Nothing <laughs> tragic Ophelia ever happened to anybody over. named Ophelia. As an English teacher, I would never name my kid Ophelia. <laughs> like, most of this Thank movie you. is following Vidal and Mercedes. And I'm not saying that's in any way a bad thing. I'm just saying I've been hearing people hype this movie for 16 years and no one fucking told me either of them existed. Well, you don't want to remember the tragedy, although, you know, Mercedes. They're where we Mercedes is where we get the wish fulfillment of this movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's that sure as fuck not with Ophelia. (laughs) Well, Mercedes is definitely like 
We just talked about Devil's Backbone last week. She's definitely the Conchita of this movie, but she wins. Like she yes. actually survives and, and cuts the dude up in this one as compared to Conchita, who was just like, no, fuck you, kill me, fine. I mean, as much as I love like everything that is the fantasy element like of it all, like as the whole, I just can't help but prefer Devil's Backbone for just being a more focused story i think but overall again i'm not objective i'm fucked up feeling don't worry about anything i say that's fine if you're mad at me being weird and mean to this movie my opinions are weird and bad and have a bad context deal with it am i to assume that this is your first time seeing the film this is my first time seeing it okay i had been spoiled the ending but i mean we are kind of spoiled the ending in the first few minutes of the film. I mean, yeah, I mean, I watched it with my partner and Kathleen. Yeah, like Kathleen was very like, oh, I thought that would be like the big shocking moment for you. And I'm like, again, been spoiled. But also I'm like, the movie does tell us this is a fairy tale about the princess of the underworld going back to the underworld. I mean, I mean, it's not that hard to piece together. Also, this movie, again, emotionally has a problem where Sorry, you know, we'll get to it. No, that's okay. reca- after recap. After recap. I'm sorry. I've gone too much on tangents. Yeah, Emily is doing the recap for this one. So, Emily, take it away. <laughs> Let me open my head. Okay, so, Pan's Labyrinth. Director and writer, Guillermo del Toro. Starring, Ivana Baquero, Ariadna Gil, Maribel Verdú, Sergi Lopez, and Doug Jones as we have said. So our story begins in Spain, 1944. The fascist regime is hunting resistant spiders in the mountains. We are introduced to our protagonist, Ophelia. She is an imaginative and bookish young girl, which is too bad because she is traveling into the mountains to live with her fascist stepdad in a military camp intending to root out the resistance. Fascist Captain Vidal is a typical misogynistic, anal retentive, glove-wearing military autocrat. Ophelia's mother, Carmen, is, as Ophelia puts it, sick with a fascist baby, whom everyone presumes is a son. But it's not all bad. The mountain base is surrounded with radish and pecan stone effigies, including, but not limited to, a whole-ass labyrinth. Also, someone has introduced a very non-native stick insect into this biome. Stick insects are also cool, but don't bode well for a native wildlife. We meet Mercedes, the matron of the help, and Dr. Ferriero, both of whom are sympathetic to Ophelia and, presumably, the Resistance. The captain, thankfully, does not share a bed with Carmen. He is too busy brutally murdering innocent farmers and pretty much anyone who is suspicious. Meanwhile, Ophelia comforts her unborn brother by telling him some tragically beautiful allegorical fairy tales. Oh, but what's this? The potentially invasive stick insect is actually a literal fairy. Better? The fairy leads Ophelia into the (laughs) the rad labyrinth under cover of night to meet an aged fawn. He immediately recognizes Ophelia as the lost Princess Moana, daughter of the King of the Underworld, and alas, despite the presence of many monoliths in this film, the rock does not appear. The fawn tasks Ophelia with several side quests to prove that her mystical essence is intact so that she may return to her true kingdom. She is given a blank book, which shall, in time, show her what she must do before the moon is full. And let me start with quest number one. Place three magic stones in the belly of a giant toad in the roots of a tree. And don't ruin your pretty dress while doing it. 
This will save the ancient fig tree and reward you with a key item, which is, in fact, a key. Pretty sure this one is from Legend of the Hidden Temple. Yeah, I'm pretty yeah. sure we got this one in uh, Legend of Zelda as well, although it did not involve the toe turning inside out. It is gross. It does happen in Metroid, though. Yes, that's that's an important point. The dress is, in fact, ruined, and so is any chance of impressing the stepdad. That's not a total loss, but it makes Mom sad. Meanwhile, the captain has dinner with a bunch of, de- of deplorables intent on judging Carmen, including, but not limited to, a priest who is totally cool with genocide. We get some backstory about Vidal and his watch, which he's obsessed with. Before Quest 2 can begin, Kahneman has a hemorrhage and Ophelia can no longer share rooms with her. Mercedes comforts Ophelia, who admits that she knows Mercedes is helping the resistance. She promises not to out Mercedes because A, she likes Mercedes, and B, she hates Vidal because he, she is sensible. Mercedes is confirmed based as she sneaks out with the doctor to help her brother and the guerrillas. The file comes to Ophelia this time, giving her shit because she hasn't done Quest 2 yet. And she says it's because her mom is sick. What, she, what can she do? So she gets Quest 1.5, place a mandrake root in milk under mom's bed to help her get better. Oh, and feed it your own blood. That's important. So now we get Quest 2. Use items fairy, keyed, and chalk to create a portal to the home of the pale man. A.K.A. Mitch McConnell. I'm pretty sure this is actually Mitch McConnell's house. Complete with little shoes on the floor. This is a timed quest, though, and you cannot by any means touch any food. That is your one job. You, well, that and use key to unlock the right portal. No, left portal. To acquire the key item, dagger. However, Ophelia does, in fact, touch the food. The pale man wakes and hungers for child flesh, chasing her. She barely escapes and loses two fairies in the process, and this is not helping her track record at all. The juiciest grapes. I was like, this is no problem. Then I saw those grapes and I was like, man, those grapes do look fucking good. Which is wild because I was like, "Mm, they probably have seeds on them. I don't want those. (laughs) Some real attack on Titan vibes when he eats them fairies. Apparently they were blood-filled condoms. It said that in the trivia for the remake. So enjoy that. I didn't know that. Well, another one for Doug Jones. Yeah, Doug Jones, what a fucking legend. (laughs) For real. (laughs) All right, so... Meanwhile, explosions happen. The resistance guerrillas are going on the offensive and distract Vida whilst attacking the mill, uh, taking the rations from the mill base. Vidal's suspicions mount R.E., the doctor, and Mercedes. The military gives chase and catches the member of the resistance group who stutters. Vidal threatens torture through ableism. Torture ensues. The phone returns to Ophelia and is pretty pissed about losing the fairies because of the grapes. The deal is off. No more quests. No returning to the underworld. This is pretty severe. And speaking of severity, Videl calls the doctor to treat the tortured freedom fighter, and the doctor grants the prisoner's request to be killed. Videl discovers the mandrake under Carmen's bed, disrupting her magical recovery. Carmen throws the root on the fire and then goes into premature labor. Videl confirms the doc is not on his side and shoots him just in time to miss Carmen dying in childbirth. Videl threatens Mercedes, who then tries to escape off into the night with Ophelia. They are caught. Things aren't too, looking too hot for Mercedes as Vidal prepares to torture her, but his plans are foiled when she uses a knife from the kitchen to free herself and then stab the shit out of him. Damn. But alas, he's not dead. Mercedes is pursued into the woods, but life does find a way as the resist fi- resistance fighters save her. The foul returns then to a desperate and hopeless Ophelia locked in her room and offers her one more chance to complete quest number three, kidnapping her hinted brother. Videl is sadly not too stabbed to shit to sew up the Joker smile that Mercedes gave him. As she does so, Ophelia uses item chalk to infiltrate his room to get access to item baby. 
In the process, she used the bonus item, Vile, to poison Figdal's liquor. Ophelia is almost... Ophelia almost accomplishes a nigh-impossible stealth challenge with Baby in her arms, but explosions alert Vidal to her infiltration. He chases her into the labyrinth. Fortunately, the labyrinth magically opens to, for her to make a straight shot to the fountain. Upon approaching him, Ophelia discovers the rest of quest number three, drawing the blood of an innocent, i.e. her brother. This is sus as hell, so she, de she declines. Vidal then reaches her, shoots her, and takes the baby. He is then greeted by the entire resistance force, and gives up, gives up his son to Mercedes and her gorgeous brother. They take the baby and kill his fascist ass. Mercedes comforts Ophelia in death, but her own blood under the full moon indeed opens the portal, and her soul returns as the princess to her rightful home and family in the underworld. The end. Don't name your kid Ophelia. <laughs> so with this ending, another reason why my perspective and attitude on this movie is again unfair and weird and off kilter is because this scene this ending that my life finder thought would leave me like just a sad wreck did not realize like just the movies that we've watched in lead up to this so instead of being sad about the dead child we get to the underworld and my only attitude is oh hell yeah we'll be back we got Loopy as king of the underworld. Yeah, Loopy going three for three this month. Yes, Frederick you know, Loopy plays plays Ray, the king of the underworld. Who you know, if if you guys have listened to the other ones, he's vampire grandpa in Kronos. It's right. And, yes, uh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, and he's he's dead doctor man and uh, devil's backbone. What am I supposed to be sad about dead kid? Loopy's here. I mean, she's dead. And she gets I, the party with Loopy. I know, but I still cry. I very distinctly remember watching this the first time with a group of friends and like having opposite reactions. They were like, oh, she died. It's so sad. And I was like, no, she made it to the underworld. Like, I know that's like, that's like, oh, is this something she's imagining? Who the fuck cares? Like in her imagination, she made it to this place and she's, she's the princess now. What's the, there in her fantasy is infinitely better than anything that she would have continued to live if she was in Franco Spain. Like, you know, yeah, they haven't won at the end of this movie. They have a temporary victory. They've taken out one dude. Well, it's taken out his whole camp. Like, what is the happy ending version of this movie? I mean, she doesn't die. Mercedes finishes the job. Mercedes doesn't cut his lip open and run away. She just stabs him to death and the movie ends. Well, they shoot the shit out of her. At least slices his throat open. Yeah, well, after he's shot Ophelia, like... But is that a happy thing? Because then she, like... What becomes of her fantasy quest to return to the underworld? Well, or, like, I'm the goal Jeremy, of the fantasy like, quest... Like, like you, I'm with Jeremy on this one. It's like, I don't know if it's real, but movies are fiction, so it doesn't fucking matter. Like, was this not the goal of her quest? Did she not succeed at the quest she was aiming for? I have to say, like, Mercedes really gets all the badassery in this movie. She gets the best mm -hmm. lines. She gets to do oh, the yeah. craziest shit. She gets Chekhov's knife. She stabs yes. this dude multiple times. And he's like, you're not going to get away. And she puts the knife in his mouth and says, you won't be the, la the first pig I've gutted. And just, like, slices up his face on the way out. I was like, continue stabbing him. But good line. And right? then, like... 
he's got this obsession with the watch that Emily mentioned. And the thing is that like his dad was a soldier as well and smashed the watch at the time of his death. So his son would know when he died and he fixes the watch so that like he can do the same thing himself. And he's getting ready to like hand over the so watch. So he has daddy Mercedes. issues is what you're saying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Correct. A fascist with daddy issues. Yeah. He gets, he gets ready to hand the watch over to Mercedes and it's like, tell my son. And like, she's like, fuck no. He's not even going to know who you are. And then, then kills him. He so won't bad. even know your name. Mercedes. Yeah. Rules. Mercedes yeah. really rules. Like, that's the real triumph of this movie. In my notes, when they showed him like repairing the watch, I was like, this horologist ass motherfucker. Like, <laughs> like, like, oh, I'm so complex. I can fix a watch. There was some really interesting imagery with that because he was in the room with the mill and with all the, the the mill like machinery and he was so obsessed with this watch and I feel like it had something to do with his fastidiousness and like, you know, how fucking fascist he was, you know, because he was always like shaving perfectly and buffing his boots and shit. I saw that also as an extension of Del Toro's clockwork Nazi imagery from the first Hellboy movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And clocks equal... Fascism seems to be a bit of a recurring image, which makes sense. The, you know, everything reduced to just precise gears devoid of humanity or irregularity. I, and in this film, there is a contrast between like the natural and the industrial. And in this case, you know, this is less of an industrial. Would you say a it's a sort of military industrial? industrial complex? Yeah, that. It was capitalism all along. Indeed. The thing with the watches, I think, is so much that like the the precept underlying fascism is that you can somehow control everybody, that you can like make yeah. a better world by controlling everybody, and it just doesn't fucking work that way. But it's like Mussolini yeah. making the trains run on time, right? Like it's the yeah. idea that like, yeah. yeah, this is bad, but look at the order and look at the perfection. Which for the record, he didn't do. The trains did not run particularly well in no. fascist Italy. And that's the thing yeah. about the watch is that it's broken and it's not reliable at all. But he's still obsessed with making it reliable. Carrie and Emmanuel, I want to know your both of your first impressions of the movie. I first saw the movie when it actually came out in the theaters here in the States. It was my first time seeing a Guillermo del Toro film, if I recall correctly. And I had no clue what to expect. All I saw was that it had a slon in it and there was like fantasy stuff, but there was people saying it was kind of dark. And I saw actually the thing that sold me on going to see it was I read in a newspaper or something that in Spain, they were actually or Spanish speaking countries. They were actually putting warnings over the posters to say, hey, this isn't for kids. Maybe don't take your five-year-old to see this. Oh, and, that's a and good call. I was that like was immediately, just on that, I was just like sold, let's go see it. And when I came out of it, I will say it's one of those films that really, really impacted me more than I expected it to. I think the same thing happened to me with another film called Arrival, where I came out Great of those movie. films and it just, it, it felt like something shifted. I loved every second of it, even like the really sad bits. It spoke a lot to some personal stuff I was going through at the time. It still talks about personal stuff that I'm going through personally. And like, it's still very raw, but in a way where this, it's like when I watched that film, I feel, felt like, and even now, 
I feel like I watched that film and I'm going in with a wound that needs to be cleaned and it's going to hurt. But when you come out, it's clean and now it has the chance to heal. That's poetic. Sorry. Fantastic. Movie. Awesome. <laughs> no, it's great. Yeah. That's fantastic. Like, I totally get that in the ending. I mean, it's happy for Ophelia, but it speaks to me of this idea that I feel like is the true, the, the closest thing that I can accept to like afterlife and, and looking at death is that your soul finds an ideal and whatever. I mean, this is like it, the, the reality becomes subjective to you, you know, and like, the, the nanoseconds that it takes your brain to, to create a dream never really has the wake up point when you dream to give you any like context of an end, right? Mm -hmm. If that makes any sense. So it's like what happens with Ophelia feels as close to me as a triumph in reality as it could. And, you know, it would be great if that was true. I can't, none of us can really know. But that was so, like, it was bittersweet to me. I mean, in terms of reality being subjective, I personally prescribe to the thesis that all of existence is just a simulation being run for a cosmic aliens college thesis project. <laughs> I mean, it's as likely as anything, honestly. I believe that this universe is a school project and we are definitely not getting above a B. <laughs> So to to piggyback off what you were saying, Emily, about the sort of, sort of whole idea of like that sort of balance between reality, fantasy, and, and all that kind of stuff, there is actually this great book, which I kind of showed you all beforehand, but it's called The Uses of Enchantment, The Meaning and Importance of Fairy Tales. And it's by Bruno Bettelheim. And that's B-E-T-T-E-L-H-E-I-M. Bettelheim, just for reference, he's a child psychologist and is often considered one of the best child psychologist of the 20th century. And he's written a lot on understanding childhood uh, development, childhood trauma, all that kind of stuff. But he has some really interesting thoughts on how we work as human beings when it comes to reality and fantasy and why fairy tales are so important. So they're sort of like Ophelia's mother and her, her like fascist asshole stepfather have this thing that they're like this isn't real you're too old for this all that kind of stuff and what it comes down to is that the fear that a child's mind this is coming straight from the books the fear that a child's mind may become so overfed to fairy tale fantasies as to neglect learning to cope with reality is a is like a fear that people have and actually the opposite is true complex as we all are conflicted ambivalent full of contradictions the human personality is indivisible. Whatever an experience may be, it always affects all the aspects of the personal personality at the same time. And the total personality, in order to be able to deal with the tasks of living, needs to be backed up by a rich fantasy combined with a firm consciousness and a clear grasp of reality. Faulty development sets in when one component of the personality, id, ego, or superego, conscious or unconscious, overpowers any of the others and depletes the total personality of its particular resources. He goes on to say that it has been mistakenly suggested that an overrich fantasy life interferes with our coping successfully with reality, and that's just not true. Those who live completely in their fantasies are beset by compulsive ruminations, which rotate in eternally around the some narrow stereotypical topics. Far from having a rich fantasy life, 
such people are locked in and they cannot break out of one anxious or wish-fulfilling dream. So this has this, this is a thing that I find so poetic about this film. We're sitting here talking about the fact that Ophelia is living in a fantasy world when the person who's living in the fantasy world is her stepfather. Yes. Yeah. I w- that, that had occurred to me when I was thinking about the propaganda of everything. I didn't want to compare the profound fantasy of Ophelia's experience with the actual fantasy of fascism, mm-hmm. you know, because these are both fantasy. I do want to hear Emmanuel. I want to hear what you hear your first impression of the movie and what, you know, when you first saw it. Um, yeah, so I had seen before this Devil's Backbone as well as Hellboy and had fallen in love with Guillermo Toro's feature design. That's a thing that every one of his projects kind of just, it strikes me. So I saw Ben's Labyrinth was coming out, went to see it, immediately taken in, right? And I'm, as I've said, I'm a teacher. I, I have probably a savior complex and like the kids that like need a little more love and like need someone to help them. Like that is, you got me. And that is the story. I immediately went back to see it again. I've never done that with any other movie to see it a second time in theaters. It is, it is a thing that I think about pretty regularly I, i'm just fascinated by so much of it and then by extension as i've said discovering doug jones who shows up in a lot of these projects right and he's in this he's in shape of water if you need a weird creature to do a weird thing with its body he's your dude and so i think that is another part of it through del toro there he kind of reminds me of neil gaiman checked up one of my recommendations later is this kind of dark fantasy allegorical stories about the, you know, maybe this didn't happen, maybe this did. I I find that a time and time again, that a, those are the kind of stories that I gravitated towards. I and mean, then he is one of the best to ever do it. Like he, it may not always be amazing, but it is always interesting and always intricately designed and is clearly a thing that he puts all of his passion, effort and resources into. If you get a chance, just like read through the trivia page on IMDb about this, I... He doesn't mm-hmm. let people do subtitles anymore for him. He writes the English subtitles himself because they're not getting the sense of his words. Every one of these projects, he has like a notebook that has all kind of like quotes and creature designs and ideas. And so it's, it is a thing that yeah. he is fanatical about these projects. And I think it really comes across in the end. I have not seen Pinocchio yet, but. At least for oh this God, and a lot it. of his other movies, I, it, yeah, it very Pinocchio much seems... fanaticism on another, another level. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I, well, give it to, put it in my veins, like. But yeah, I just I, these are the for a long time this this kind of dark fantasy character using fictional stories to kind of cope with reality. That is a story thing that I have just gravitated towards. Perhaps because you know I kind of had like a rough school experience myself growing up getting bullied and whatnot and so books were there so i don't know but love it it's it's interesting to me because i i feel like there's definitely a through line to a lot of del toro's stuff in a lot of different ways but i think the one that like is most obvious in this and i was thinking about showing this to to zuri who was 11 because i think she would really gain something from it but uh, honestly, the wine bottle scene alone would probably mm-hmm. make me wait a, a couple more years. And yeah. you're sewing your mouse together, Maxie. As I was watching it this time, uh, I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot. The creature's design is a little spooky. And like the blind creature is is scary. But like Guillermo del Toro loves men are the real monsters. Like mm-hmm. the monsters 
are fine. And that's very true in this movie. There's nothing that the creatures in this movie do that stacks up to this man beating a farmer's face in with a wine bottle for no good reason. That's part of where like the disconnect comes from is that like I've heard so much about the pale man and how he's like this incredible villain and how it's like the scariest scene of and how he's like the scariest part of the whole movie. And for some reason, I thought he was the main villain. And I also thought he talked. That's (laughs) on me. Nobody told me he talked. I just assumed he talked. You were thinking that's fine. Yeah, because Mr. McConnell. But like at the end of the day, like, yeah. When he's eating the fairies, that's fucking hardcore and scary and awesome. But his friend to Ophelia, he is just kind of like a weird shambly man who just kind of slowly shambles. Like, as cool a design as it is and as lived in and as wonderful as Doug Jones' performances and as good as the creature design is, like, I gotta say, the scene, you know, as you put it, Emily, torturing through ableism where he challenges the resistance member to count to three without stuttering. I found that to be a way more like tense and uncomfortable scene. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a certain amount of like, there's definitely a component of abuse, like in the abusive stepfather kind of way in this. And he is literally an abusive stepfather, but he takes it well beyond that. But like, there's certainly that like, the pale man has rules, right? And then, like, if you follow the rules, you don't have to worry about him eating you. But this guy, the captain, is, Vidal is just like, you have to tiptoe around him. And even if you do that, he might be mad at you for tiptoeing. Like, there's nothing she can do that will be the right thing. And she does inevitably do the wrong thing. Like, she does, you know, go trekking off and get her, you know, nice shoes and dress destroyed. But, like, even if she weren't, there's no right thing for her to do. There's no way that things would be good. Like, I mean, that's sort of what I was talking about about the ending. Like, there's there's no ending in which things are good at the end of this movie. You know, she might, you know, stay with Mercedes, who's definitely a, a better option than what she's been with so far. But like, yeah, I think the movie in particular, I think, says what it has to say about fascism is like, Carmen thinks that if, you just be good and if you do what he wants you to do that you can get by that she can survive and carmen gets physically crushed for that belief like she is allowed to die because you know he he wants to preserve his baby over her life like there's never a question in this for him and she does not seem to realize that there's no amount of the right thing she can do to stop this fascist misogynist asshole from crushing her she he cannot be bartered with or begged with eventually he will destroy everything and you know i think mercedes understands this like she's sort of like bowing and scraping when she's with him and then immediately is like let me sneak some guns to the resistance yeah yeah. emmanuel yeah i know just on the pale man like i think one of the things that i love about this movie is that each of these tasks is somewhat allegorical right she first deals with this toad that's living inside a thing, consuming all the nutrients and killing it, like her baby brother. There's the pale man. I think the captain would say, like, I'm fine to get along with you. just have to follow the rules. And he is sitting at this feast and not allowing anyone to touch in the same way that he has the storeroom that has all of these things in it and directly punishes anyone that tries to take down it. And so I, I think it is the perspective there of the 
yes, this is unreasonable. Yes, he's abusive. But in the captain's eyes, he's trying to get along. Just do what I say. Just follow the rules, right? Well, how hard is this? And I think it's sort of like you said, that's what makes him especially horrific. And in Del Toro's eyes, that's really what makes him the evil person is the inability to see his own cruelty, the inability to see his own evil, like the guy that has no eyes until he puts him in his palms. Yes. I do love the degree to which the outline of just like this evil stepfather Cinderella is just like emo teen Guillermo del Toro's like Cinderella story. I mean, to like a the nth degree. I mean, with I mean, like with the the it's interesting looking at this movie and also looking at the Pinocchio movie, which you know we haven't talked about, but in both movies. I mean, I think P- Pinocchio a little bit more. Like, the fascism is... Pinocchio just... died in his Pinocchio? Oh, no. Repeatedly. I'm just talking about the fascism. Oh, well, okay. I mean... Pinocchio died I haven't fascist. seen it. I haven't seen it. Does Pinocchio die at the end of Pinocchio? I'm not going to tell you. Oh, no. There's talk in that movie, though. Um, I mean, I will tell you, Pinocchio died like half an hour into Pinocchio. There's well, plenty of Pinocchio dying in that movie. That's true. Yeah, of course Pinocchio is ending the movie getting turned into a birdhouse. I mean, he's already kind of a bird. Anyway, yeah, to the point about the Pale Man, the the other thing about the Pale Man that I think is interesting allegorically is that you have to go in there and not do anything about him. Like, you have to go in there, steal your shit, and then leave, you know, make sure you follow the rules. But you know exactly how fucking horrible like they have he has all these frescoes around his his dinner table touting his incredible feats of eating little children right shoes oh right paintings i'm hearing you i'm just thinking like i didn't have any sodas not not frescoes not not frescoes frescoes Frescoes. Uh, that man's just crazy about soda yeah i mean i'm sure he is too i that much aspartame will do that to you but yeah the the and the fact that the 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 fairy tale interpretations, as dark as they are, are a little bit more simple when their rules, like, are are laid out, right? And yeah. I think that also speaks to what you said, Carrie, about the the analysis of the fairy tales to children. Like, you know, the there is a certain amount of fantasy needed to deal with this with all of the conflicting aspects of the reality that we've got to accept. And also, like, in this case, the fairy tales are not ideal. You know, the, the ultimate ideal happens after the con- the the context of reality is removed. <laughs> you know, yeah. no matter what, the fairy tales, you know, as, as straightforward as they are, are not fun or cool. Yeah, you got a phone and you got fairies, but you also, like, have to walk in the mud and, you know, turn a frog inside out and get bugs all over you. So everything being fantasy... I think you got Ophelia in like fantasy fantasy, the captain in like fascism will work fantasy. And then I think Mercedes is like the fantasy for the audience of the old fashioned Hollywood good guys win narrative where she gets miraculously saved in the nick, right in the nick of time. And also her brother is miraculously still alive and they win, even though in real life they don't win. There is just 30 years of more fascism for Spain. Well, this but is happening least... much closer to the the end of fascist Spain than Devil's Backbone, which is still pretty early, I think. It's, because I they mean, are the talking Franco about government... World War II beginning in this movie. Right, but they, ne- I mean, it, they never get rid of Franco. I mean, Franco just 
dies of old age in 1975. Yeah. I so think I think there's a sense of like I think Mercedes I think is like us the viewers fantasy. Yeah. I mean I I think if we want to talk about the like the different elements of the fantasy quest as part of the like you know metaphor for fascism or I guess how to beat fascism is like you know you have the you do have the toad who like lives inside of this thing and by living inside if it kills it like you can't just let it survive there and and continue to to go on because it is going to rot it from the inside and then you know in the case of the the blind man like you can't you can't take some of the food you can't like take a little bit of fascism and be okay like you have to it has to be an all or nothing thing and it it is going to be tempting because they have everything so like you want to take from it and so you know are you saying you you can't have little of fascism as a treat. Yeah, you can't have a little fascism as a treat. You can't like take the rewards of it for yourself and not actually partake in it. That's still partaking in it. And then you know, I think the ultimate question is like, you know, who can can you sacrifice innocent people to fight fascism? And the answer is no. You become a fascist when you do that. Like you become a fascist when you trade lives for lives. And like you know, and and she realizes like. You know, she she refuses to give up her brother and, you know, ends up dying herself. And that's like, maybe that's the only way to do it is to just, you know, put put yourself on the line. You can't you can't. Well, that was the final. Well, no, I mean, we're, we're explicitly told that that's the final test. Yeah. That she wouldn't yes. sacrifice her brother. Yeah. For the underworld, Indeed. but also for fighting fascism. Yes. Yeah. It's look, I'm not always sure where the analogy goes, but I I think loopy is anti-fascism. I think so, too. And I think that that also the fact that death is the only real escape now, you know, is that is an escape from the complexity of reality where things can be ideal. Carrie, you were going to say. Um, I want to just talk a little bit about the pale man, because yes. I don't know if this just tracks for my religious trauma, but that felt like a church to me. So the actual inside felt like a church to me. The first time I saw it, I remember thinking, that's weird. There's like all these frescoes. There's there's even like an altar. There's, you know, that giant table of food. And then, you know, you think of like the the priest at the head of the table or all that stuff. But the thing that solidified it for me was when Ophelia takes some. Homegirl has not eaten for the majority of the day. <laughs> and then just based off of, you know, where she's come from, that she came from the city, that her mother's married this fascist creep, and that her mom is like, oh my gosh, look at this. There's there's like clothes and pretty shoes and stuff like that. In my head, what I feel is this is a child that's used to trauma, like consistently mm-hmm. used to trauma, and like likely didn't have a lot of food. She's like a war kid. So when you're laid out, when you don't have any food, you haven't had food all day, and then you're you're laid out in this giant, lovely banquet in front of you, and you're told not to eat a goddamn thing, and then you take some out of need, that wasn't just like, oh, I'm not listening to you because I don't want to listen to you. She's hungry because her body is hungry. And all I can say is that when I saw that for the first time, I was like, original sin, immediately. And it was just like, again, probably speaking to the like all the religious crap in the past, but it's just like, I think it's very interesting that these that that scene and the scene of the of the sort of feast, the dinner party, kind of overlaps one not overlaps, but they kind of bookend one another. And also the fact that that priest 
at the dinner table says something to the effect of like, you know, well, the, you know, the souls of the rebels are saved and what happens to their bodies, God doesn't really care about. And it just sort of made me think a lot about like how, how kind of the church sort of just sort of sidestepped for fascism in many cases, especially when you think about what was happening and, you know, with the Pope and the Catholic Church during that time. And then you also think more about like how, you know, the Catholic Church in many cases, a lot of religions actually have issues with, you know, child abuse and being essayed type of thing. And that's just not cool. And meanwhile, they have this bountiful thing in front of them, all the money, all the riches, whole things around them. But the only thing they want is like the innocence that they don't have. Yeah. And that has always been like one of the things that really made me go like it, it just sort of stuck with me. And the more I watched it the, this time and I was like looking at other details behind this, you know, like behind the stuff going on in the foreground was like, he's not I don't know what it is about Guillermo, but he's like he's not cool with the church as much as he's not cool with fascism. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, the, the the institution of the church, for sure. Yeah, but anyway, I just wanted to mention that because it's something that I was like, wow, that's interesting. <laughs> well, there's there's a really interesting, if you've seen the film Jojo Rabbit. Okay, there, so that's... A bizarre adventure. There's no, no bizarre... Well, I mean, there's kind of a bizarre adventure, but it, it involves more Nazis. It doesn't rule out the manga. That's true. Unfortunately, um, the Nazis are the good guys in part two. Whoops. Big That's oops. That's a daisy. Yeah. Yeah. Oops, oh, a doodle. Not quite sure what Iraqi was thinking with that one. I mean, he made Jesus a judge. Anyway, but Jojo Rabbit, the film by Taika Waititi, is interesting because, you know, it comes out in a time where, where we're really like fighting this resurgence of fascism in America. And it starts out with this kid who's in Hitler news. And he is totally, like, completely sold by the propaganda. Like, he just is full on into it. And he, if he has these, these fantasies where he sees he's talking to Hitler, who is played by Taiko ITT, which is wild, but he has this, this image of Hitler being so cool and so ideal. There's this big where he's like, he sees him like eating a unicorn at this table because he's like, that incredible that he eats unicorns every day you know to this kid and then later in the movie as this kid is starving and his family has nothing he has he has the same fantasies but now he is watching as this taika waititi cartoon hitler is eating a unicorn in front of him and he has nothing to eat and um that's also a really interesting way that fantasy expresses that and expresses the predatory nature of these institutions you know and that's and i can the go for some man. unicorn right now Shit, i mean i don't be hungry for unicorn yeah i don't know it could be good you know um i'm sure it's, it is it's horse it's probably not <laughs> but it's magic rainbow i imagine that it's like you ever had candied bacon where it's just like a naturally candied meat that maybe sounds just, that sounds like chocolate dog food Ooh. Yeah, okay. That's kind of fucked up for dogs. That, I know. Yeah, right? That sounds, uh, that's unhealthy lethal. for dogs. So, so yeah. poison? I don't know. Yeah, I, I think, you know, talking about, going off of that, and I think thinking about this and tied to Pinocchio, you know, there is definitely this, like, tie between the way that we see the pale man in this and the way that 
the military has shown in uh, in Pinocchio is sort of like we're just feeding our kids to the military. Like, you know, mm-hmm. they're very raw, raw, send the kids, you know, out to fight. Like they're training them as, you know, little boys. They see this, you know, wooden little boy who, you know, can't can't die in the way a flesh and blood little boy does is like this, you know, opportunity to, you know, just have have this great soldier. You know, I think that, you know, we see that pile of children's shoes and, and they're in that fresco of, you know, children being eaten. And it's the same sort of, you know, if, we, if we're viewing him as an institution, be it the church or the military, you know, that we're literally feeding children to, I think that that ties in pretty soundly with, with that. Yeah. Do we think that the, the sick insect is, an, is also a metaphor of invasive species and invasive ideas or I, I'm I feel not sure like- because the stick insect turns into the fairy and the fairies are always just very supportive yeah, yeah. okay this so is one of the areas of the they're also like, snitches though yeah yeah like okay if you look well, at any of did their... get a few of them eaten for a few grapes yeah but they showed back up at the end so i did i were those the same fairies though yes they were yeah okay in color better. so she ate two grapes he ate two fairies the share the fairies showed back up at the end Okay. Um, but crap. I look at the fairy talk. Oh, there it is. Okay. So, one of the things that I do have a gripe about with is that with the fairy within the fairies, there's like a permeated culture throughout most of Europe. You don't fuck with the fae. You see a fairy, you see the fae, you're just like, bye. Or, or it's like, you see the fae. No, you didn't. It caused exactly. name. No, it didn't. <laughs> They're called fairies because you treat them fairly or else they'll fuck you up. And by treat Basically, them fairly, you don't eat their food, you don't go into their homes, you don't, you don't exchange no. anything, make any bargains. Like that's, yeah. That is like the folklorist to me is like a fairy is telling you not to eat the food, so you better fucking eat. That's also true. Yeah, so I don't know. It's a- the, the fairy thing is interesting to me because the creature never presents itself as a fairy until she says it's a fairy and then right. it changes into a fairy like she shows it a picture of a fairy and it changes from being a bug into a fairy so like you know how much that's supposed to be an indication maybe to us that this is all fantasy whether it's just that this creature is is turning into whatever is you know comfortable for her or whatever she needs to see to follow it to continue this quest right a little unclear hmm. Yeah, it's never. I like how they keep it ambiguous as to whether there's truly magic going on, or if this is just what Ophelia is throwing herself into to not have to deal with, you know, her actual situation. I uh, I do like how the fairies are nebulous. Like their their goals are nebulous, right? I mean, it's all subjective because you know you see the phone, and also Mercedes is like, you know, my mom always said, don't trust the phone. And that's valid. I mean, uh-huh. you think about what fonts are like, you know, where they come from and everything like that. You know, this is this guy is a little bit different of a vibe, but he still is not super straightforward about things. You know, like quest number three, part one, steal your brother. Don't worry about what we're going to do with him. We just want a baby. And, you know, giving a baby to fairies is never and that's never broken bad. Right. <laughs> I mean, I mean. I will say, like, again, to the degree that this movie I felt like I was led to believe was like, ooh, once the fantasy element starts, like, 
that's the movie. And but instead, it's like we kept cutting between you know fantasy and the real world. And while this is a very interesting, very tense and gripping exploration of fascist Spain, I couldn't help but thinking like this is like if in Labyrinth we just cut back every ten minutes to see how the parents' date was going. I mean, I feel like it's more. I think it's it's necessary to have if we're going to be talking about fascism and what's going on and how just how fucking. But we've established that I'm not being fair or reasonable. That's okay. Okay, I'm just saying, like, you know, I acknowledge that that's how it feels, especially when you come into this movie expecting something more like labyrinth, right? I'm just saying. Yeah, the thought occurred to me where I'm like, okay, cool, fit. Not even in that I disliked either part of it. I just wasn't right. expecting a solid 70% of the movie to be in the movie. I mean, and that's a, that's also valid. Because it throws a gal off. And that's a, what we remember of the movie. Those of us who saw it the first time and we're all like, was the fun in this stuff? And that guy gets his ass beat by a bottle. Like, that's what we remember. I mean, this is what I assume everybody remembers in this movie is that they like are, are super like, wow, that fun was fucking rad. And like, well, it's it was fucking very rad. sad. Yeah, well, it's the totally fun is fucking rad. You know, we're all we were all drawing eyeballs on our hands when this movie came out and being like, oh, 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 we, but yeah, like I steal Supreme Court seats. Right. <laughs> and eat children. OK, to be fair, he hadn't gotten there yet in 2006. Well, Guillermo del Toro, uh, good on you for seeing ahead. I mean, that Doug Jones is both the fun and the McConnell man. I mean, fucking McConnell good on man. Doug Jones. I mean, we like, all know that Doug great. Jones is like fucking awesome. Go. Any time I see a weird guy, I'm just like, Doug Jones, is that you? You got to tell me if it's you. It, it, it's fitting that he plays the fawn because Doug Jones truly is the goat. <laughs> you got to tell me if you're Doug Jones or else it's in I can never remember the name of his movie. What, Grinding Nemo. What's that? Shape of Water. Grinding it, Nemo. At the moment, where's the movie we're talking about next week? Nemo's on that grind set. I mean, we'd all just grind in that movie. Well, like, he just has the posture and, like, the... Everything about him is otherworldly. There's a short like YouTube like documentary just about him and his mime training and how he embodies his characters. And it's so fascinating because he he is what makes these figures otherworldly and uncanny. Like it is him doing stuff with his body. It's not the prosthesis or the makeup. It is uh, Doug Jones. <laughs> I do remember though, Doug Jones got cast on the Flash TV show, and I was very excited to see, ooh, what crazy and inventive and otherworldly DC character did you get Doug Jones to play? And it turns out they got him to just be himself, but he can shoot lasers out of his eyes. (laughs) I'm pretty sure he shows up on Doctor Who one or two times, just playing any of a number of creepy dudes. He was on Starship Discovery, which he did really Oh, he's one of like, he's pretty much the only non-Michael Burnham character that gets screen time. It's like the Michael and Saru show. He's great. Yeah. Saru has more of a, like an emotional journey than Michael does. Like Saru yeah, is true. somebody that you're like, does he care about that giant shrimp man? Like he's he's important to me. And that shrimp <laughs> I care important. so hard about the giant shrimp man. Having not seen this, I love that sentence. Yeah, the giant shrimp man is important to me. Rightfully so. He's a great character. I would never undersell Doug Jones. I think you know he does an incredible job in this. It's also. A super nice guy if you've never met him like yeah super super nice like likes yeah. to give hugs likes to talk to people super excited kind of creepy to see stand up from a table because he is very tall that's not special effects he's very tall but like he does unfold as a human i don't like that so much of what makes this is not just doug jones but guillermo del toro's commitment to both 
both letting Doug Jones do it and to like doing practical effects. You know, the fawn legs are real. Like they did digitally remove the actor's legs in that scene, but he's like controlling the fawn legs with his own legs. That's not a special effect. That's prosthesis and headgear and costume. Like, you know, the pale man is real. Like that's the stuff that matters. The fairies are fake because the fairies, but you know, everything else about that is, is like, it's real and terrifying. Especially yeah. in 2006, when people were like, we CGI can do anything. Look, it's Revenge of the Sith. I was saying, my only gripe is that Ophelia doesn't look where the fairies are. It drives me crazy. In every okay, scene. thank you. I'm I'm not the only one. I was just like, why is she not looking at them? Like, just, just put them where she's looking. Like, how hard is this? <laughs> I mean, we, we talked about, you know, the first Resident Evil movie and how, like, it gets to the climax and it's been a movie full of zombies and then the climax, it turns into a big CGI monster and, like, it just looks dumb. It doesn't look like it has any weight. Like, you, it just totally ruins what is supposed to be the climax of the movie because you're like, that is yeah. that is an effect in a hallway that is not real. Like, <laughs> everything about yeah. this looks weightless. It looks like Jar Jar Binks in a field full of, you know, other fake creatures but like this this movie is dedicated to like having things in the space and like putting in the time and the money and the effort to like make real physical special effects in a way that like at that time especially people weren't doing hellboy came out before this or did it i think the first hellboy is before this i think this splits the hellboy second hellboy is afterwards okay okay because that's the thing like I think part of it is also seeing this movie after I've seen Hellboy 2, where it's kind of like, these creature designs are cool, but if I really want to see wall-to-wall, non-stop Del Toro fantasy creature designs, I should pop in Hellboy 2, The Golden Army. How can you love that movie and how just like completely off the rails it is? It's like, so Hellboy, but also this. And I'm like, you go. You just do your shit, man. <laughs> I love a director who has the courage to just put his D&D campaign into a movie. Like, yes. You know? Fuck yes. Like, at first when I saw the trailers for it, I thought it was legit, like, a, a Drista Orton movie, like Homeland or whatever, the Drista Orton books. That's not my recommendation, but it kind of is. <laughs> um, if you want to something completely unrelated and nowhere near as poignant as this movie. Can we talk about the uterus? Sure. Okay, and it's how it's an all over the place in this film. That... So yeah, the 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 uterus imagery. We got we got fetuses. Oh, we got fetuses, but it's also you've got the uterine imagery everywhere, even with the fawn's head. There, if you oh, look yeah, at yeah, the yeah. bed frame behind mom, like it actually Olympian has tubes. the the sort of fallopian tubes and the uterus the tree in of itself is literally a uterus the fallopian tubes ovaries and then you've got the vagina where she actually ends up crawling into yeah and then there's actually there's a paper that i found it's a, a somebody wrote this as a thesis which was basically a paper about how this film is at its core, actually, about somebody getting their period. Because, okay. yeah, I, I thought it was like at first I was like, I don't know. But then I started I'm reading down to it take though. this walk, but like, I need to see the path. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah I'm, uh, I'm going to need, I'm going to need to show your work. <laughs> All right. I can show my work. I can send you guys the paper. I mean, it's actually quite fascinating. 
But I was anyway, say, menstruation is hero's journey in Pan's Labyrinth by Richard Lindsay. Like that's wild. Kind I mean, I, yeah, I can absolutely see it because there is a point in this. Like, obviously, there's uterine imagery and stuff like that. The baby is very important to the story. Yeah, but there well, is the blood like, pouring out of the ball scene where they, the doctor tells, or I think it's Mercedes tells tells Ophelia, like, yeah, sometimes you know the baby can make you sick, sometimes it can kill you. And Ophelia's like, but I'm not fucking having kids. Like, that's yeah, not going to exactly. happen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She said, he's, it's like, I think Mercedes is like, having a baby is complicated. And Ophelia's like, then I won't have one. Which, um, but she's right. True. But I, I like how you did it better than how she did, though. But what I really think is interesting in this theory. So walking through the theory, you have a child who is about 11. You have her going through this. Mul- these multiple journeys where she's you've got the green dress where she goes into the the tree there's a theory that the green dress means virginity fertility all that sort of stuff and removing it she's actually losing her virginity going in that's one theory i'm not saying i i completely buy it but the the part that so, sort of solidified it for me was the idea you needed a blood of an innocent in order to open the portal it's Ophelia's blood, and she's at the point where she would begin menstruating. And yeah, that's what opens the portal for herself to be reborn into another realm. So, and then the other thing that makes me go, huh, is the very last shot is our uterus tree, and we see a white bloom on what would be the ovary. And that's interesting because, like, you know, I can see it. I can I can definitely see it, especially the blood of the innocent thing, because when they say they need the blood of the innocent, they also don't like the, the phone asks for the blood of the innocent. But it doesn't occur to anybody that Ophelia's blood would work instead. You know, yeah. like he says, all I need is a little pinprick. And she's like, you're not getting that knife near this baby no matter what. Exactly. Right. Instead of because she also had to feed the the mandrake root her own blood. Right. Mm-hmm. By the way, that whole scene, all I could think was grow for. <laughs> I mean, like, it's like Audrey too. Little I bit, my shot, little like, bit. No, little shop of horrors. <laughs> little suckling on the on the finger there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but the 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 thing that I mean, I I see the uh, I saw the abstract here. But I, the, in this case, the adulthood that she reaches, she rejects the like adulthood of the real world and becomes an ideal because it says in the end that she rules and is a fair and just ruler. Like there's no For many there's centuries, no real- which I thought I, I hoped we were going to end on like a weird future where it's like Spain. But now everyone has flying cars and it's chrome, but she's still ruling the underworld. Or like it's the cool underworld and like the underworld and the overworld are the same or something like that. But that, that probably would be pretty post-apocalyptic if, if we're, you know, in Guillermo's wheelhouse, which, you know, is a wheelhouse I'm, I'm into. But. Hey, so there was something I encountered in this movie that I'm not sure about that I want to ask y'all about. Yes. The sounds that the fairies make, are those the same monkey sounds as Abu from Aladdin? No. One of them sounds the same, but I don't think they're the same. Mm-mm. Abu was actually done by a voice actor specifically for that role at that time. Carrie, you know everything and it's impressive. Huh? Yeah, for real. Said, you know everything and it's really impressive. Because those like, fairies sounded distractingly like Abu. No, I the hear you. Like, fairies, you 
You better not steal a big gem and make a bunch of lava fall that we got to escape on the flying carpet. Fun Naughty fact. fairies. That was taken directly from the Thief and the Cobbler. Yes, it was. You're correct. I love that movie in a very weird way. It has some very strange vibes, but it also is just fun to watch. I mean, just one of the most cursed productions. One of the most cursed yeah. productions, and also if you're ever high, it's hilarious, and it is. A oh no! Like oh no! Me, Richard I Williams never. doing that whole like oh, oh my god! Perish the thought. <laughs> You'll go the fucking magic lady. Yeah, and her like hands up at you. Yeah, I would be For me, like, it's no, not the. No, I'm out. It's the chase through the the palace with zigzag, and like you have all oh, that, that. C. Escher stuff going. <laughs> oh my god! Why? Why did you do that? Huh? Why would you do? That? Why would you do that to yourself? <laughs> because I'm in Maine and there's not a lot to do. <laughs> okay, that's fair. All right. Yeah, but yeah, Question I, I just drawn. Yeah, okay, cool, 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 cool. But yeah, the <laughs> only reason I I know a lot of this stuff at Manuel is because I I work in animation development and I also am really interested in film development, fairy tales, folklore, and how they apply to history. So this is like this is like my genre, my vibe. And I'm really I don't know, man. I just I love how Guillermo del Toro takes in many cases a lot of inspiration from animation and yes. makes them feel not necessarily more real but just like solidified in reality if that makes any sense like if you somebody told me that they were going to make a animated version of pan's labyrinth that stuck to the story i'd be like fuck yes let's go if you had miyazaki do pan's labyrinth i'd be down oh yeah well, very some... miyazaki yeah yes i was gonna say especially with that beginning like the them the men here or whatever, like the, the the stone monolith with the figure on it. That it would she, be like, half an hour longer together. if he did it. But... <laughs> oh, yeah. can we talk about that? Or farming. That <laughs> yeah. The explosions would look the would same. Look incredible. Yeah. Everything. Like, I love the ruins so much. I love the fact that they, they kept referencing there is a garden in trance, I believe it is. And they have like these, there's supposed to be hell mouths is what they're kind of called within art and art history but it's the idea that they are portals to hades so you have the eyes wide and the mouth open and the mouth is where you go into to go into hades which i always thought was really clever especially when you looked at how the fact that the portal where she has to go to go to the underworld is actually under an image of that sort of hell mouth figure mm-hmm. and also all the pictish sort of stuff that goes in there so it's just like ah so cool yeah i mean and, and- yeah, in, in that area in Spain, you know, you have the you had the Gauls oh, there, you had the Gaelic yeah, the Gaelic influence. So I don't know what part of Spain this is, though. So I can't really I can't be like, that's Gaelic, but I think it's know, very specifically non specific. Yeah, it's very yes. it's very non specific, but I can't I'll have to send you guys a picture of it, but I'll see if I can find it. Let me see. And yeah, I think it's that interesting a lot of to the- me and I, I found out the reason for it is I I feel like the only special effects that don't look good are explosions in this movie. And that's because they couldn't actually do them because the place they were filming this was actually having a massive drought at the time. So they weren't allowed to do explosions in in person. So all of the explosions are very clearly added digitally, especially oh, when you're no. looking at like, you know, <laughs> you're looking at this in 4K. It's like, oh boy, that yeah. definitely wasn't an explosion <laughs> over that hill. It was- I feel like... 
there was there was such kind of fantastic lighting though even in the real scenes that yeah. it kind of worked out like because there was a lot of these scenes where i wasn't quite sure if it was night or day and i think it was just like mood lighting because they're like okay it's everything's a blue shift because of the mood and you know whether it's night or day shut up <laughs> i'm and i'm like i will it's a mood thing i'm into it you know, it's, I, I think they, they did a lot of what looks like night for day filming. And I, I think it works sort of with the like vibe of the movie where everything is supposed to look ethereal. Having the sky look kind of blue in the middle of the night doesn't really bother me. Yeah. Huh. The way it always does when I watch old Westerns where it's just like, you know, they've, they've just clearly shot this during the day and just put a blue filter over it. Always looks bad. I always Light. thought that those things were I always, like a, those blue filtered things, the shots. I I have a theory that they're actually done during the day or in the evening, like just around the evening and the golden hour. And then they just posted over the did the blue shift over the post production. Yeah. Just so that to save the time. And I just sent a God, I hope that works. Did I just send only an emoji? That would be dumb. You did. I, I super did. I That's not like, helpful. I don't know what she's trying to communicate. I'm not smart mm-hmm. enough for this. Pen. pen. Got it. Got pen. it. Pen. pen. Pen's labyrinth. There we go. Pen's labyrinth. See if that works. <laughs> Marco, Marco, Marco. There we go. So yeah. I think that's one of oh, the... Oh, yes. Uh, yeah. That's Legend of the Hidden Temple. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's one of the ones I think they kind of referenced within that film. Though, again, you can find them everywhere and anywhere. Then uh. they come from all different areas. So, of time and place. So, they're really popular in the Middle Ages. And then it was also really popular to create. Do you guys know what follies are? What, what kind of folly are you talking about? Follies in the 17th century where they purposefully built ruin. Like, oh. Yeah. And people had too much free time back then. And too much money. Yeah, a lot of money. Uh, We've had video games. <laughs> we just play video games now. Build, we build in Minecraft. Um, but yeah, so that's another thing that they reminded the ruins there kind of reminded me of was the idea of follies that you see. In a lot of cases, it was like rich estates and stuff like that. So yes. there was this whole thing where they wanted it to look like effortlessly grown and beautiful like you're walking into into the ruins of something that's been overgrown and literally like almost verbatim they were just taking the ideas of creating nature and gardening in a way that would create things that looked natural in unnatural ways so they did this whole thing where they stopped doing the mowing the lawns and they started just doing wildflowers and stuff like that just for the sake of it because they thought it was pretty and that's what the peasants had and so mm-hmm. now the peasants did <laughs> oh it's like the, the cottage core basically yeah. it's basically cottage core of the time it, it's like gentrified gardening i don't i i get that yeah i get that because it yeah Anyway, that's what uh, it reminded me of, too. I'm trying to, I'm looking through my notes here to see if there's... I'm browsing through my bits of trivia. There is, so we've got evidence to back up your your religion in the Pale Man thing. Apparently, Guillermo del Toro conceived the Pale Man as an allusion to the perverted image of the stigmata. Mm. Ghastly wounds on his hands. Somehow um, that doesn't surprise me, but it makes me... That signify so. grace and plenty. <laughs> that tracks... Yeah, I didn't even think of that at the time. Like, I, you know, we were talking about, I was just thinking about, like, 
you know, the predatory nature of, of certain religious institutions. But yeah, the, the that, stigmata on that guy. Yeah. That'd be fucked. Like, imagine only seeing stuff have like the viewpoint of your hands. The whole I mean, time he was yeah. like waving at you. the fairies. I was just like, what does that look like? Cooking I, of citrus fruits is right out the window. Well, that's where he just relies on touch. You know, he takes the, that's why he was, he had him out. Because, you know, he wanted to eat those pomegranates. He didn't want to get the juice in his eyes. That's fair. That's fair. I mean, you know, he seems a good to... way to keep watching TV while you head to the kitchen to grab a snack. But talk about like a, a conflict of ideas, right? Like within a design and within a character, like, you know, you either see or you touch, but you can't like, you know, that's, that's up there with the, the um, conflicted reality and all of the, the, the dichotomies and the, what's the word I'm looking for? The, the opposites. Duality. Duality. Thank you. The juxtapositions, duality, all of those good words. Yeah. Okay. Speaking of which, that is actually something that I did find was that there's a weird sort of, okay. So you have sort of the good versus the evil that sort of played as a theme here, but then you also have the idea of innocence. So I was sort of looking through some notes and seeing what some bloggers and stuff were saying. And this is something that came up a lot with folks was that they were talking about how you have, as far as theming for the, like the universal sort of understood idea of this, this film was sort of like, okay, if you're looking for a theme for this film, it's not good versus evil. It's moral disobedience. The idea of disobeying because it's the moral thing. But also sort of the idea that if you were going to go into the good versus evil sort of track, it's actually more like good versus evil versus innocence and how innocence can't really exist in between good versus evil because there's all this pain and suffering in, in between. Yeah, and that's that comes up when you're talking about Ophelia eating the grape is that being a child of wartime, you know, you need to do what you can to take care of yourself. Right. Mm-hmm. And the morality that is projected on you that you are supposed to invest in is not true morality. And there's a there's that is implicit. So, you know, there is a real moral disobedience, I say. Um, and how you work within fascism. Yeah. Yeah. And like, and it's interesting too, because when I first saw this movie and when she was, you know, eating the grapes, I was like, well, he had one. I mean, she's a kid. Like, I can't expect a kid. He had one job. Yeah. Like, you, at first, like, you had one job. But at the same time, like, if everybody did their one job in this movie, then nothing would change and everything would suck. Right. So, you know, she also. That's sort of the nature of fairy tales in many cases. It's sort of like, you don't do X, character does X. And they mess up because people are valuable. Fal- fal- oh my god, valuable! Thank you. <laughs> They're that, and you know, sort of the idea that you know, okay, even your heroes aren't going to be perfect, but yeah. having that chance to regroup and retry is what's going to make it. Is what's going to get you there in the end. And there, there is like this weird sort of thing with a lot of fairy tales where they focus on purity, especially if they're if they're focused on women, which don't get me started. But it's like it's sort of like a weird idea of like somehow trickster energy, but also general hero energy. So sort of like the idea like with Jack and the Beanstalk, Jack, you know, grabs what he i think he grabs the harp and then takes it back down the stalk and is like oh crap the giant's coming down what do i do <laughs> and then it just yeah. pops down the beanstalk and i'm like somebody 
there's like a whole slew. There's like kilometers of beanstalk and people having a really bad day because he just decided to cut that thing. <laughs> anyway, continue. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, Emmanuel, you're saying. No, I mean, just going back to the whole idea of fairy tales in general, there's no story if you're perfect. There's no story mm-hmm. if you fall, if you're obedient, right? The story mm-hmm. happens when you deviate, when you leave the path, when you make the choice that carries you off into adventure. Mm-hmm. I think it's from Brian K. saga, right? But it's the idea that children have to leave home to have an adventure. There's mm-hmm. no story if you just stay at home where it's safe. And so, yeah. Yeah, it's the call, essentially. You know, I, something- I think there's, there's this something to the the mischief side of things in this because I think like it is in English called Pan's Labyrinth, but that's not the original title of it. It's you know in Spanish, it's just the Labyrinth of the Fun, and like Guillermo del Toro said, like it's not Pan, like you know, yeah, Pan is weird and sexual and Pan's like a not chaos probably God. appropriate for this particular endeavor, but he's he's much more like. Sort of like the, you know, chaosy trickster, you know, puck type fun, you know, from, from a Midsummer Night's Dream, you know, and he does, he does trick her. He does, you know, he, he does have to trick her for her to get through the, you know, the tests and everything. And I think that, you know, that energy is, is more sort of concentrated on the side of good in this case, especially as fascism, this ultimate fantasy of control is the villain in this movie. Mm-hmm. I definitely agree with that. For sure. I mean, the one thing we don't have, I think, you know, that we normally talk about here is sort of there's n- there's no sort of queer characters. There's no real LGBT representation in this story, at least not that that I can find. Do you guys have anything to <laughs> contest that? Mm. I couldn't think on that one. Not couldn't think, it, but it, I, it, I can't really think of anything. There. Yeah. Yeah. It's... Almost. Almost. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. Other than the, you know, the desire of Ophelia not to have kids specifically, there's nothing else that sort of reads queer about any of the, the characters and stuff there. I do think, obviously, we talked one. a lot about the, like, class and social justice aspects of it. Do you, do you guys feel like, I, mean, I know, I know how I feel about this. Do you guys feel like this is a feminist movie? I feel like it is to a certain degree, yes. I think it talks about what it is like to be female i guess cis gender female to a certain extent since we don't have much lgbtq representation but i think it I mean, does... ultimately the downfall of the captain is that he un- he underestimates women basically yeah to me it is actually quite quite a feminist film but i mean again guillermo has that sort of habit in a lot of his films of uh, yeah like i definitely don't think there's anything sexist or toxic here i think everything's very presented very well, I mean, let's see, Mercedes is the character who gets all the big hero moments. Yeah, I mean, so, to call yeah. Videl toxically masculine is undershooting it. Yeah, that, that's like, under- <laughs> at a certain point, you just are a Nazi. Because, like, while looking- he literally, like, the only thing he's concerned about is is his son. Like, he does not care about the welfare of his son's mother, of his own, you know, this girl who should be his stepdaughter. He should be treating as such. Like they were very, in one of the trivias I was looking at, they were, they pointed out that the, the, the way you greet yeah. a group of people, if they were all women, it's one word. And, you know, if there's men among them and it's a mixed group, you would, would go with the masculine word. And when he greets 
his his wife and stepdaughter. He greets them as if there is a man in the group, specifically because the only thing he cares about is the son. Like, um, yeah. yeah. No, like I remember just... watching. Go Sorry, ahead, go ahead, Emmanuel. No, please. I just I remember watching it. They make a big deal of his shaving with this straight razor, and I was like, man, that's like weirdly old school. Like, surely safety razors were invented not too long. Safety razors were invented like the 1900s. For 40 years, he's been able to get a regular razor. But no, he wants to think of himself as like, I don't know, Billy Jean or something. I just like go around with this ridiculously dangerous weapon at his throat. Just like that, that is toxically masculine, right? The I could use a safety razor, but safety is for non men. I'm going to use a straight razor. Yeah. You know, I have to admit there's a one scene where he's like shaving and looking at himself in the mirror and then he's like pretending to cut his own throat. And that is one scene where I'm just like, I don't understand. Like, I feel like I missed the boat or missed the memo on that. It's just like, what is this showing that he has a death wish that he's like, what is that telling us? I, I, I That was one of the scenes where I was like, is this necessary? I mean, if you've that watch, you got to think over the top. Line, right? Yeah. It's also just this, like, just this, just showing just how much just dumb macho-ness is all a part of that. That it's all just, like, pride and appearances and fucking bullshit. He had this weird obsession with his father and that he, you know, is more, more obsessed with his own son, like, knowing that he, you know, was a, was a warrior was in this fight to the end than anything else. Yeah, he... It's a real some bitch. But yeah, like I, I think toxically masculine is underselling it. He is incredibly toxic on all fronts, but especially on a masculine front. <laughs> For real though. Yeah. I, I don't know that it says anything particularly interesting about mental health, but you know, we do have the the mom is sort of representing this sort of physical disability and being, you know, basically sedated into staying in bed all the time by you know, by this, by Vidal to, to preserve the baby, you know, he's I mean, not he's at all interested in her. Vidal is super ableist too. Yeah. So ableist. Oh. Like first. He's, he's pretty up there for me as yeah. far as like worst villains, but yeah, I don't know. The, the part that like kind of like is gut wrenching for me is the scene where the book warns her about her mother and how things are not going well like that like just i have a bunch of friends right now who are having their first or you know about to have their first and just watching that scene i'm just like i cannot imagine being 11 and seeing that happen to your mom and and somehow not like 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 how do you process that like to me i mean if there's a really traumatic scene in that film for me personally, it's actually that because I can't tell you how many people I know who have like infertility issues and the thing they're terrified of the most is wiping and finding blood. Yeah. When they're pregnant. Well, and she does initially describe her mom's pregnancy as her mom being sick with baby. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, you know, and that's it's interesting because most of the time, you know, kids will be like oh yes well you know mom and daddy are having a baby or whatever i mean like in 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 these sort of idealized or you know it's it's never that they see the the baby as 
the an illness of the parent so much like the illness is a is a symptom certainly but they it, it seems clear to me that ophelia doesn't really recognize the baby really as a living thing until she actually has it in her hands i, I mean, don't know that conversation she has it. with the baby before the baby's born is heart-wrenching yeah and that's true like, that's true and she's like hey man just so you know like you've got a, a mom out here that like Okay, she's sad a lot, but when she smiles, she's really beautiful, and I'd really just love it if you didn't kill her on the way out. Like, just if you could just not hurt her, that would be great. Yeah. Uh, no. Well, I think I think it's when the the mom actually. You're right. I think she doesn't quite get it until the until her mom starts hemorrhaging, yeah. and then that's when she's like, "Okay, so this is a real thing. Like, this isn't just mom being kind of sick and you know talking about." her her little you know her little brother being in there like now she sees that there's evidence like physical evidence of this which begs the question what was if if the book was showing that what was her quest supposed to be i think that book was just simply warning her yeah it it wasn't necessarily a quest because she didn't even ask it for a quest she just opened it up and the book started bleeding and yeah, it, that's actually, that's another point. It's where when the book starts bleeding, it starts bleeding, spiraling out and from the ovaries and into the uterus and yeah. down. Yeah, it does create the uterus pattern. Oh, yeah. No, nah, that's um, that's a scene that's just really, really just just very thorough for me. And then there's also like a, one of the things that I was kind of playing with and being like, huh, is the, the story that Ophelia tells her her brother about the rose, like the blue rose that's wilting because no one will, is brave enough to pick it. Because when you look at her her dress at the end of the film, it ha- it's covered in red roses, but then they're red. So I don't know. Like part of me is like, there's something there, but I, I'm just not grasping it. Yeah, I mean, if I was really reaching, I would say that there is something here in this movie about the idea of memory and being remembered as the legacy that, you know, which Vidal is so obsessed with leaving a legacy with his son because he wants to be remembered. Mm-hmm. And then there's this threat that the phone has that, that if Ophelia never regains her mystical essence, then she will be forgotten forever. Mm-hmm. And I think that I, the, there is a statement here not sure exactly what it is, but I think it is a statement of, you know, that the the, uh, the child's life, you know, or what you proliferate, what you procreate isn't always physical as a child. It's about a legacy, whether it be an idea or a or an ideal or a person, you know, a, a human being like the baby, you know, and I think that what if we're going to be talking about how the the idea of menstruation and procreation is involved here. I think that in the fact that Ophelia isn't at all excited about having kids and she just really doesn't want to have kids. I don't think that there is any sort of judgment passed on the idea of fertility. It's more like the idea that you leave behind or the ideals you leave behind is another form of procreation and proliferation of yourself. If that makes any sense. Does that make sense? For tell me. I, yeah, I don't know the so. the the rose story kind of kind of gets me too. I don't I don't know exactly what the the idea is, but I I think the like it has this 
feeling of being about like, you know, I, I guess things that are worthwhile being difficult, like that, you know, it's that this thing is, this rose has a promise, like it has potential, but like it is because people are afraid of the thorns they don't attempt to get the rose like that they don't attempt to reach this thing because they don't say like oh tons of people died trying to get to the rose they say oh like people stopped going because it was it was you know too dangerous and too difficult and ophelia is a person is the only person in this who is you know not afraid to sort of believe in the possibility of of something better of something different you know and and try to you know overcome these challenges to get to it but like yeah, I, I think, you know, the the fascists in particular are, you know, they they have no imagination. They have no desire to to reach for something, you know, difficult and, and hard to reach. They just want to beat it out of people. I don't know. I question what are the are the uniforms that psycho dads dudes wear blue? I think so. They're in the blue spectrum. Let me double check. Because everything was blue for a while. Yeah. So, die. <laughs> uh, no, but I mean, I, I'm thinking about that and the fact that Guillermo del Toro actually did say that when he was thinking about the sort of fantasy fairy tale realm, that sort of world, everything was really warm versus the real world being cold. Yeah. So maybe that blue flower isn't about Ophelia at all. Maybe it's about Psycho Dad and the fact that he surrounded himself with poison, so he can't get what he wants. Because he's poisoned everything around him. His, yeah. His I'm, immortality will not succeed, or his legacy isn't going to succeed because everything around him is just poisoned. I think that's a lot more profound than we're, I mean, like, I think that's more on point than the sort of, I mean, like, Vidal as a character is probably one of the more, you know, the, the closest thing to begin to a sympathetic character just because we are in terms of all the, like, the fascists. Even though he's awful, he does have a reason that for his awfulness, maybe sort of not, to, you know, compared to the uh, like actually human characters in the story, he's monstrous as all get out, but he does have an ideal that he's reaching. It is perverse, but it's, it's also interesting because I, you know, whenever you see flowers, especially flowers on the end of like a, of, the imagery of a fallopian too, you know, you, you come to mind sensuality and fertility and, and feminine, you know, parts, I guess, the like, you know, traditionally coded feminine parts. And I don't think that is really as relevant in this case. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think the rose represents that, but it's yeah. a theory. <laughs> it is a theory. No, I, I like that. I like that as a theory. I like that as a theory a lot because, you know, the, the, the fantasy of fascism is important to address and that's you know again like in jojo rabbit where they talk about how these the the fantasy of this propaganda can like just turn on itself so easily when the the system falls apart yeah you know i think this is also something interesting that i found out is that during world war ii i think it was specifically in allied controlled areas they actually banned brothers Grimm fairy tales from being read because they were mostly concerned that it would it would make like it had a couple stereotypes there's stereotypes in them that they found problematic for the jewish people but then it also they they, there's like this whole thing about fairy tales are too violent and they're going to just 
they're going to encourage people to butcher more people or something like that. So the idea of that Ophelia still has them is and why she brought them is actually really interesting to me because, you know, she has access to them when other children and allied occupied areas don't. So anyway, I just found that to be an interesting little tidbit there. Yeah. Um, and also kind of going. And else, the uh-huh. uniforms are, the, the fascist uniforms are kind of a blue gray. Okay. So they're, we have that. Theory stamped. <laughs> <laughs> don't ask me to defend it. I don't know. Well, we could uh, certainly, I think, talk about this movie all night. We've already done it quite a bit, but I yeah. think it's time for us to start reeling it in and for me to ask guys, would we recommend people check this out? I know, Ben, you had some some diverse thoughts on this. Would you recommend this to somebody else? Yeah, sure. <laughs> it's good. It is good. You do like it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's just... I just watched it after 16 years of being like, yo, y'all got to see this. This is like one of the most mind-blowing fantasy movies you've ever seen. Like, just the imagination in every scene is just going to blow you away. You've never seen anything like Pan's Labyrinth. And I'm like, it didn't quite live up to 16 years of that. But it's Dude, a good movie. 16 years. Yeah. I'm busy. <laughs> I watch all the Fast and the Furious films 10 times. <laughs> Something's going to be done. Yeah, it would be like if, like, you were super excited about watching The Fast and the Furious. Somebody was like, it's the best movie about car racing ever. And then you actually watch The Fast and the Furious and you were like, not a movie about car racing at all. Yeah. Yeah. Family. Yeah. This is about family. I mean, in that case, it's kind of a bonus, but. Yeah. What about the rest of you guys? I I feel like I know the answer to this. Would you recommend people check this out? Absolutely. I wish I could show it in my class, but it's rated R. (laughs) So probably not going to happen. Right, you might be able to do it if you send like permission slips. Yeah, home. I mean, you the, need the permission the slips. Like, hey, a Nazi is going to take a wine bottle and then smash a man's face in with it <laughs> so many times. Okay, that but there Nazis just are in now. Is, is no the issue. <laughs> face anymore. I hate that sentence. And I, you just get he does not die from that. He just <laughs> no. He is still just like writhing around crawling around just not having any of the things that would constitute a face and it's just i don't like it i mean i like it in that it is a very intense movie villain being awful but i oof i mean it is it is tough seeing a man not have a face <laughs> it's not okay I feel like uh, you'd be easy, I'd have an easier time getting this one past than the Fishman movie, in which there are sexy times <laughs> with a Fishman. But this is America. You can always get violence approved where mild sex will get you fired. Yeah, that's true. True. I think I definitely recommend this to just about anybody, even if the folks do have kids. You know, I'd basically be like, do you let your kids watch horror movies? And what kind of horror movies are they? Okay. So if you're okay with that, then you should be okay with this. That's true. I guess my main concern is like, okay, have they watched subtitled stuff before or will this be their first time doing that? Maybe like well, get all them... the kids that they watch anime. So. Maybe all they have access Probably. to is dubs. But <laughs> now they get all its crunchy rolls cheap. You can it's all subs on there, baby. Oh really? Yeah. You just well, need to an old lesson. But, yeah, some <laughs> of them have options and as does Hulu, all the anime on Hulu is subbed or dubbed, but Oh, 
You yeah. can watch you can watch Sailor Moon in Japanese or in English on there. They still have the Japanese theme song. They don't have that ridiculous American Sailor Moon theme song from the nineties. You mean the classic? Yes. I mean I like that song, but <laughs> I like you know, them both. Yeah. I think they're both valid. Yeah, No Fighting Evil by Moonlight. Love by Daylight. daylight. Never running from a real fight. She's the one Sailor Moon. She'll never turn her back on the friend. She'll always be there to keep bed. She's the one upon whom you can't depend. She is the one. Sailor Moon. Sailor Moon. I mean, at least they kept the original. I don't know that I would call Yusagi particularly dependable, but you know. Yeah. She's, She's dependable in terms of like friendship. Like, no matter what, she's like, I'll be there for you. And it's like, she I'm will not be there half an you. hour late and have forgotten. <laughs> I've got friends like that. Yeah, not physically there. Not. She'll be there for you. Just don't actually need her to be at a particular place at a particular time. She's the person that you tell an hour and a half before they're supposed to show up that they're supposed to show up. Yes. But she's like, because she's helping another friend. Like, that's the thing is that she's just helping everybody. And the only reason that she's late is she's overwhelmed by the number of people that she's helping with the power of friendship. I <laughs> Sailor Moon. She also just sleeps in late. She, she does. does not get up on time. Yeah. But uh, have you seen what she's doing at night? I'd want to sleep in too. Yeah. I think she's valid. I didn't say she was valid. I just said sleeping. she's not always there when you call and she isn't always on time. Luna is always on her ass, so there's True. that. But yeah, I definitely think that this is something I would recommend to anybody. I actually have a question for you guys. Yeah. What? It's, is the fantasy real or not? I think it doesn't matter whether it is or not. That's my answer, too. It doesn't matter. I think Leonardo DiCaprio was still in a dream. Better I'm be. So, I'm sorry. What? Wait, I, oh, I decided to reference Inception. Inception. I decided to make an Inception joke. I, it threw me for a loop, but I got there. <laughs> Okay, I only an just got there. When you said, Wait, was Leo in this movie? God, I gotta turn me. I gotta get ADHD drugs. Like I'm oh, not focused at that's all. That's where I was too, Emmanuel. I think it's only Stop. real to Ophelia, but within the terms of the movie, does it? I don't think it matters if it's real to anyone else, right? So yeah. long as it's real to her. It's like, is Hobbs real? As in Hobbs and Shaw? No, the Calvin and Hobbs. Than uh, Calvin Hobbs and Hobbs, Spider. not Hobbs and Shaw. Although, if that Hobbs was in Hobbs and Shaw, that would be a fascinating. Calvin and Hobbs film. and Shaw. Yeah, if it was, if it was The Rock and a giant, uh, I guess The Rock is Hobbs, isn't he? So it would be Jason. Yeah. Statham. It's more entertaining with Jason Statham and Hobbs. <laughs> that sounds delightful. You know, what? You should make a sequel to Tyson Calvin Bowl. <laughs> we make up the rules as we go along. <laughs> Don't wait. Sorry. No, you're fine. I'm now think... recasting Calvin and Hobbes movie with James <laughs> as Calvin. Okay. Sorry. Okay. Well, with that said, what do we recommend people check out if they enjoyed this film or I guess if they didn't as well? Carrie, what do you got? Again, I have the book called The Uses of Enchantment, The Meaning and Importance of Fairy Tales by Bruno Bettelheim. I will always recommend the original versions of any fairy tales you can find, specifically if there's any ones that you can find from other cultures. Yoshi Yoshitani actually has a beautiful tarot set, which is all based on folk tales and fairy tales from across the globe, pictured yes. with art. And if you, you can actually just get the fairy tales and stuff in a book and the art is just beautiful. And it's just really, it's a really cool opening for a lot of folks on, you know, okay, what, 
can you get besides Cinderella? What is there outside within the realm of fairy tale and folk tales that isn't Eurocentric? So I definitely suggest. I think it's called the. No, I'll get the name of it later. But <laughs> let me look it up because I'm. I own that. I own the tarot, and there's a book that goes with it. Alicia, I love you. You do our MVP. Sorry for making this difficult. There we go. Fuck. Never mind. Hold on. Is it Tarot of the Divine? I think it's Tarot of the Divine. Yeah, Tarot of the Divine. And then there's a Tarot of the Divine handbook. Yes. Yeah. So, and that she has Yoshi Yoshitani has a store. She has a Instagram. You can get the Tarot. You can get the handbook. You can get the Tarot deck by itself. We can get them together. Yeah. Good stuff. And one of the things I love about the Tarot deck, if anybody's interested in it, is because of the fairy tales and stuff that are within it, you can actually get a better understanding of actually what the card means. So like, for example, if you pull the Empress, you get something like, or no, the Magician, you get something like the the Fairy Godmother, I think it is, which sort of tells you more about what that that card means and all that kind of stuff. So pretty cool. Manual, what have you got? It rolls. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got the family stuff. You've got allegorical myriad experiences. You've got fantastical creatures that maybe you shouldn't really trust. They're kind of intriguing. And that unsettling, but kind of beautiful creature design. It's, it's great. It's another one that I, I saw in theaters and I just couldn't think, stop thinking about and also saw in theaters. There were definitely children in that audience who should not have been there. Nice. It's it's great. Please watch Coraline. Also watch everything by Leica Studios because they're incredible. Yes, so. they are. Yes. Indeed. Uh, ben, what have you got? I will say check out Labyrinth, but do not check out Pan. <laughs> Good call. Good call. <laughs> right, there's just a movie called Pan. There yeah, is. It's, it's a Peter, Peter Pan Peter movie Pan from 20... 20- it's one of those 2010s... Let's try to turn everything into an MCU style franchise, but oh, with Peter Pan, you'll take a look, you'll look at a wiki and be like, ooh, this looks interesting, but then you'll be like, oh, no, it's not. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Emily. So yeah. I mentioned Jojo Rabbit, but what I really want to recommend is if you're looking for a story that is about trauma, about processing trauma, and is incredibly imaginative and builds beautiful visual language, there's a video game called Greece that is great in Spanish and it's a story of a girl dealing with loss and she is going through the various stages of grief and returning color to her own world and it's, it's really incredible. beautiful yeah you okay Jeremy Did you have to, were you thinking about so you, you're pronouncing Greece and my first thought was tell me more tell me more yeah 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 right I mean yes which I would play a video game of Greece, just to put it out there, if anybody feels like getting a video game of Greece, I don't know how that would work, but I'm sure you could do it. There's, wait, there's there's car just races, wait. Hmm? Rockstar games. Huh? I I think I, I am very confused what? once, and I always confuse it with Crybaby in my head. Does Greece oh, have a scene films. where they're like driving cars at each other? Or is that only Crybaby? Greece oh, has the a musical. scene where they're oh, racing cars. They race cars with so each other. So they don't play chicken in Greece. They do play no. chicken in Crybaby. They do talk about cars as if they are penises for an entire musical number. That's Greece. Okay. Greece so is you the word. Crybaby, and then you know where I like. Cry, oh, the movie Crybaby, not the other thing. No, not Devil Man. So I I went back and forth. I was, a lot of stuff. This is sort of my like 
area of things that I like to recommend stuff in on this. And I, I recommended Mirror Mask last week already, so I can't do that. But going off Carrie's discussion of the particular interpretations of this movie and what it does and doesn't mean, I want to recommend The Company of Wolves, the yes. Neo Jordan film based on the Angela Carter fairy tales, which you can find in The Bloody Chamber, which is the, the book. And this is, yeah, it's another fairy tale that's all about menstruation and becoming a woman and men and all that shit. Also, Neil Jordan, if you haven't read any of his books or watched any of his movies, is super wild. Maybe read about the crying game before you watch that. But other than that, I would recommend almost anything Neil Jordan has done. But in particular, The Company of Wolves, which is really good and keeps that same sort of like fairy tale for a metaphor of a very serious thing. You know, again, not sure how much it's real how much of its metaphor within the story but it's definitely worth checking out as are the angela carter's stuff that it's based on so like you know read the bloody chamber go for it but yeah that's that's my recommendation company of wolves that's everybody everybody's recommended things okay um so that wraps it up for us carrie can you let people know where they can find out more about you and then what you do online that's true you can find me anywhere and everywhere, Twitter, Instagram, Mastodon, all those places, at Mermaid Shells. And I have a comic that I write and do art for called Kamikaze. So you can find more at kamikazecomic.com. And uh, Emmanuel, what about you? I'm on Twitter at Elipscom2, talking about teaching and books and such. As for the rest of us, you can find Emily at Megamoth on Twitter at Mega underscore Moth on Instagram and at Megamoth.net. Ben is on Twitter at Ben the Con and on their website at BenConComics.com, where you can pick up all of their books and pre-order L. Campbell Wins Their Weekend, Ben's debut graphic novel from Scholastic. And finally, for me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jrome 58 and on my website at JeremyWhitley.com, where you can find everything I write. And you can also pre-order The Dark Knight which is the graphic novel I have coming out with one of our frequent guests, Maria Indigo, which launches this May. So pre-order it now. And of course, the podcast is on Patreon at Progressively Horrified, on our website at progressivelyhorrified.transistor.fm, and on Twitter at Prog Horror Pod, where we would love to hear from you. And speaking of loving to hear from you, we would love it if you rate and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it. It helps us find new listeners when you give us five stars and it gets us out there to more people. Thanks again to our guests for joining us. Carrie, Emmanuel, it's been great. This is a, I feel like this is a movie we could spend a whole day talking about. I could absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> Pleasure, but yeah. If you do Pinocchio, please, please. Yes. I would be happy to be there for yes. Pinocchio. I feel like we could easily dedicate a whole nother month to Guillermo del Toro. We're, we're finishing this up with The Shape of Water next week. And we've already, like, in addition to this, we've already done two other Guillermo del Toro movies. There's still more to talk about. So they just keep, it just the hits just keep on coming. Hmm. Well, and again, thanks to all of you for listening. Thank you to Ben and Emily for joining me. And until next time, stay horrified. Clap.